and welcome to the Off-Kilter Quilt. My name is Frances and I'll be your hostess. Hello and welcome to episode 235. This is like take three, I think. I recorded a second QuiltCon episode, which I think I'm going to go ahead and post, but not with the episode number, just special edition. Special edition, off-kilter quilt. QuiltCon exposed. No, you know, but it just, it's, it's very long. And at this point, I don't know if people still care. And I also, I have to be honest, I'm feeling very lazy about going through it and mat- and getting pictures of all the quilts I talk about. Isn't that bad? It is. I'm just shirking my responsibilities as a podcaster. But I thought, well, I could just go ahead and post it as is. Like, here it is. You can, <laughs> If you want to know what the quilts I'm talking about look like, email me. Um, so I think I will do that as, as a separate thing. Um, and just, uh, the, yeah, oh, the other thing was I didn't feel very well when I did it. So I sound really flat. So it just, I don't know. You know, it's just like maybe you have a long drive and you are absolutely fascinated by everything I think. And all the times I go, um, or, uh, you, uh, you know, the, the, the things that I do, those fun verbal tics that I, I think everyone really um, waits for, is looking for, enjoys so very much on the Off Kilter Quilt podcast. By the way, you know, we're about a month away from my ninth anniversary which means we're getting close to the 10th anniversary and we're gonna party for number 10 when it comes around. But I just wanted to give you a year's warning in case you were planning on a big surprise party. Um, I like New Orleans, in case you're wondering. Um, Anyway, so this is my very long-winded introduction to episode 235, take 500 or whatever. It's not really, it's not really. This is actually just take three take two, I I recorded a little bit of podcast to go, uh, a a little bit of tape, it's not tape, audio, to go before the QuiltCon stuff. And now I'm not going to include that. So this is just straightforward Francis. This is straightforward Francis in the way that I'm kind of rambling on to no point that anyone can, yeah, figure out. Yeah, that's me. So no, so now we're just going to have a regular old podcast episode in which I talk about my projects and what I'm reading and uh, my quilt dog is by my side the whole time. It's a beautiful thing. It's just one quilt diary. I thought it might be more. And I thought, no, I want to get it up. I want to get this posted um, just in case anyone actually cares. <laughs> so I hope you're doing fine. Uh, I am doing well. It's a beautiful day here in North Carolina. Not that I'm the least bit affected by weather, but there are some pretty buds on the the red bud trees and that's always a nice thing this time of year so let's get on with the quilt diary quilt diary day one it is sunday march 31st i actually have an episode that i recorded almost a month ago a post quilt con episode but for some reason um I just, I don't know. I feel like I waited too long to post it. And it's a long episode, and I was uh, not feeling well when I recorded it, so it sounds really kind of dead. So I may just, I'll release it maybe as a special episode. And anyone who wants to hear my further commentary, uh, which it sounds like I'm giving you from underwater, uh, can listen, or you you could just skip it. But I thought I would just do a regular podcast episode to say hello update you, etc, etc. I'm sitting here in the front room of my house with my dog, Travis, the quilt dog, and he is very fuzzy and napping, and we have not done our W-A-L-K because it's been raining, although it seems to be clearing up a bit. Maybe after I record, I will take him out and about. It's going to be, I think it's a Sunday. I think it's going to be a low-key Sunday. I'm going to meet with a friend around noon, and then Otherwise, I think I'm going to quilt. I am hand quilting my pinwheel quilt, and I'm really enjoying it. It took a while to get up to speed, you know, to to kind of not feel awkward using a needle. And, you know, everything takes practice, right, including this. And I've done a little bit of hand quilting before, but uh, 
not in a long time. So I'm using a sulky thread. It's a 12 weight, so it's a little bit heavier thread. And uh, I'm just, I'm quilting in spirals. I'm just drawing out these spirals with my marker and um, sewing away. They're kind of haphazard. I'm in a haphazard mood. I'm very much under the influence right now of this book called, I have it in my lap. It is called Southern Quilts, Celebrating Traditions, History, and Designs. Um, and there's this, it's a collection of essays. The, the editor is Mary, I don't know if it's Kerr or Carr. Here in North Carolina, we would say Carr, K-E-R-R is pronounced Carr, but I know elsewhere it's pronounced Kerr. In fact, I know uh, Bill Kerr pronounces his name Kerr, but he has a cousin in Durham, so he knows that we here say Carr. Bill Carr, Bill, Bill Kerr being half of the Weeks Ringle Bill Kerr uh, dream team of quilters out of Chicago. Any event, so there's this essay by Teddy Pruitt called Circles and Spikes. And I'm going to read parts of it to you. <laughs> it just starts out, we know a lot about Southern quilts, we being historians, researchers, appraisers, collectors, and admirers. We also don't know a lot about Southern quilts Take, for instance, quilts made with circular designs. Years of, confirmation, years of observation confirm that quilt makers in the Deep South were extremely fond of circular patterns, particularly circular patterns with points, teeth, and spikes. Although these same patterns may show up in the North, the numbers are small compared to the great numbers made in the South. It would be gratifying to know why this is so, but the answer to that question is not readily available. That's the introduction. Um... And some of the quilts that she shows, there's a sunburst quilt, which is really pretty, string piece circles, pinwheels, um, rising sun. They're really beautiful quilts, flywheel, uh, wagon wheels, swirling circles, circle saw top, compass star, Dresden plate. Um, yeah, so anyway, but there, there's a particular section of this essay that just kind of knocked me off my feet. And I'm going to read it to you. These circular patterns are not for the faint of heart. Curved forms and long points, having bias edges, are difficult to work with and difficult to control. It would seem that only the most skilled piecer would take on such a challenge, but the plot thickens. A great number of southern quilt makers post-bellum, particularly those of Scots-Irish background, are known for less than perfect workmanship. Casual, crude, and haphazard are words that have been used to describe the work. So this begs the question, why would someone with less than stellar skills attempt the most difficult of patterns? One reason could be they were unaware their workmanship wasn't up to those arbitrary standards established by someone somewhere, standards that had nothing to do with them. If every sashing you've ever seen wobbles slightly and fails to line up with one above, with the one above or below, it's probably okay that yours does as well. If points are lopped off here and there, if something is too large and ends up with a small tuck, so what? Don't they all? The argument has been made that, though, that these less imperfect quilts were made in a rush to cover the family and provide warmth, but that theory is easily negated simply by observing the quilts closely. There are quilts here that are very obviously made to be best quilts, best being in quotes, designed to knock your socks off, and they do. They are stunning works visually, if not technically. I love that because I feel like <laughs> that describes my quilting to a, a T. I am someone with less than stellar skills. I don't necessarily attempt the most difficult patterns, but I just attempt things. You know, I get an idea and I try it, and <laughs> sometimes I think, huh, I'm not sure that was wise. But uh, yeah, and obviously I've seen, uh, I'm around really nice quilts all the time and, and look a lot at quilts. Um, but yeah, I think that I value quilts that are visually stunning more than quilts that are technically stunning. Now, obviously there are quilts that are both visually and technically stunning. Those are not my quilts. And I'm not going to make a big claim for my quilts being visually stunning. But I think that the more original ones are at least visually 
interesting. They have never been technically stunning. And sometimes to my great regret, you know, sometimes you can get away with uh, having less than stellar uh, technical skills. And sometimes it really shows. Or you can look at a quilt that is visually really interesting um, and see how it would have been even better had the quilter, i.e. me, known what she was doing. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, I, I, I like the idea of embracing imperfectionism in my own quilting, not to the point of being sloppy, but to the point of enjoying myself. So right now I am quilting, hand quilting this pinwheel quilt. And one of the, a pinwheel, is that right? Is it a pinwheel? Yeah, it's a pinwheel. Some, some, that just sounded like pinworm to me somehow. That just seemed wrong. I'm making a quilt that's got pinworms. Like, whoa, no, no, not, no. Just keep that away from me. Um, yeah, so my pinwheel quilt. And the quilting is not perfect. But, you know, I actually really enjoy imperfectionism in other people's quilts. Again, if it's visually interesting, I think also, and particularly, you know, we're seeing a lot of hand quilting lately and you know of the kind of big stitch variety uh and and i think in a way again where not every stitch is even that's not what is prized and i like that and i like you know okay so back in the day for quilters for with quilters for whom uh absolute precision was was valued you know, you can imagine like in the 19th century, kind of pre-machine made everything, that being able to be very even and straight with your stitches, besides the fact that it is good, you know, that it, it's, it's, there is a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? A practical side to that kind of precision. Your quilt's going to stay together better, you know, if you have good, even stitches, um, but it's also your, you know, your, it showed a mindfulness and a caring, but nowadays when you have machines that make perfect stitches all the time, uh, when you buy a blanket at the store, you know, or a bedspread or whatever, all the stitches are perfect. There's something about the imperfection that is, I think, uh, charmingly human. So I like that. What I'm trying to figure out with the pinwheel, with the quilting on the back, is it doesn't always seem to match up with the quilting on the front. I mean, there's there's stitches that kind of go askew, and they're not askew on the front. You know, on the front, it's like it seems to be a perfectly even row of stitches, or not perfectly even, but, you know, even enough, Um, nothing wildly out of line. And then I look in the back, I'm like, why is... There are stitch here that seems perpendicular to the other stitches. I really can't figure it out. I assume I'll get better. And I do feel even over the process of, of quilting this, and I would say I'm at least a third, close to halfway done. Um, you know, I, my, my quilting is getting better. The stitches are a little bit more even in length. I go back and forth to deciding which length I like better. <laughs> so I'm doing different lengths. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, but there are things I just don't understand about the mechanics of this. Why, why the, again, why the stitches on the back look the way they do. But I'm enjoying the process. It's been very nice. Um, it is a way to, you know, like last night, the man and I watched The Wife with Glenn Close, which was really good. It was really, really good. And um, do I think that Glenn Close should have gotten the Oscar over Olivia Coleman? Uh, not necessarily. I, 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 if she had, it would not have, Olivia Coleman would not have been robbed of the Oscar because Glenn Close's performance was really amazing. Um, but so was Olivia Coleman's in The Favorite, a movie I did not love. Um, it was too dark, too cynical for me. Uh, I can take, you know, there's some darkness in The Wife, but it's not cynical. I don't like cynical. Darkness is part of life, but, you know, anyway, that's a whole different discussion. I was thinking that I finished a book recently that I wanted to mention, by the way. I guess I finished Educated, finally, by Tara Westover. And I say finally because I I started reading it, and I read a lot of it when it first came out. And it's really worth reading. It's very good. Um, But the first time I read it, I kind of got frustrated. And I, I think I finally got tired and just put it down. 
this this last time my book club was reading it and so um you know, I, I wanted to finish it. So, I, and I actually, I, I skimmed a little bit in the beginning because I had read it before, um, and, and I had some insights that I hadn't had the first time around um, that I think made the book stronger for me, or just made me see things that I hadn't seen the first time around. So, anyway, very much worth reading if if you're looking for something to read. Um, yes, but but quilty wise. Um, yeah, so I'm enjoying the hand quilting, and it's yeah, and it is very nice to to have some social quilting to do. Uh, the quilt is too big to take with me, say to Will's baseball games. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I've I think you can take knitting places. I remember taking when I was working on the traditional birds in the air, and I hand pieced. I think I hand pieced the whole thing, except I I, may, I probably uh, machine sewed on the borders. And I hand quilted part of it and then just said, forget it. Um, it was taking too long and I needed to have it done. And so I, I ended up machine quilting most of it. But I did take the, you know, the pieces with me uh, to baseball games. And that's a little weirder. It's also it's a little harder. You know, I can see public spaces where it would be very easy to do hand piecing. Bleachers, you drop something, it's gone. It's just gone. So, so I'm hand, hand quilting. The pinwheel quilt. I'm also working on a quilt for my friend Kate. She's my friend in Nashville who opened her house to my friend Patty and uh, my Quilt Alliance peeps, Amy and Emma, for QuiltCon. And Kate is actually at UVA this semester. She's a professor of poetry, poetry writing. and uh, But she opened her house to my friends, and I really appreciated it. And so I wanted to make her a quilt, which I've been wanting to do for a long time. We've been friends forever. We've been friends for over 30 years. And um, so anyway, I was asking her about colors, and she really likes greens, but like foresty, woodsy greens. And so I just thought batiks. And uh, so I, I planned, my original plan was to make her Wainwright, which is a quilt pattern by Carolyn Friedlander, which I really, really like. Here's the thing that it took me a long time to realize. I bought her pattern, and you know, first of all, I think when I was looking at it, I'm not sure that I necessarily made the connection that it was an applique pattern, which is so obvious now. I just I liked it. I visually connected to it. I was like, yeah, that would be neat. It would work well with batiks and um, et cetera, et cetera. And then I realized, oh, it's applique. And it's really, to me, it seems like, I, I, I assume you can machine applique it. But I, I think in some ways that would be harder than hand applique. And when I sat down to actually, you know, really learn how to do it, and I just realized I don't have that kind of time and I'm not interested enough <coughs> in hand applique to spend that much time on this quilt. Maybe I, you know, have the pattern. And maybe at another time in my life, I will uh, want to make it. It's I, I love the pattern, you know. So it, it's it's not it's not the pattern's fault. But I just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. But now I, I bought all these batiks. Actually, my mom bought them for me. I went to uh, the man and Will and I went to Kentucky for Will's spring break. And my mom and I went to the the Cozy Quilter in Louisville, which is a wonderful quilt shop. If you're in the area, I highly recommend going there. And they have they have a beautiful selection of batiks, but and so I bought uh, my mom bought the batiks for me. It was lovely of her to do, and uh, so I had these batiks. And so I thought, what am I going to do? What you know, I have these batiks. I don't have a pattern, and so I started looking around online, and I actually uh, found just saw some quilts that I liked and. And what I chose, decided to do was, was to cut the batiks in strips, in sort of wonky strips, and sew them together. So I have 10 trillion seams. Um, and I'll put a picture of what I have so far. And so the colors are these foresty, woodsy greens, a kind of, I'm looking, uh, sort of brownish reds, golds. It's, you know, the, the batiks are beautiful. I used to sew with batiks all the time, and I don't at all anymore and so it's been lovely to work with them um but as my, my vision was that I would do sort of these uh rows of at first my thought was uh 
rows about 50 inches wide and six and a half inches long, I guess, deep, whatever. And, um, but now I'm thinking I'm actually going to vary the length or depth. I don't know. Depth seems like more a three dimensional thing, but, um, but long doesn't seem right, but it is, it's the, the, the vertical line is the length, right? So, um, but now, so now I'm, I, I'm going to do varying lengths of the rows, but I also, as I, uh, I, uh, and then I thought I'm going to do, you know, these borders in between the rows, also varying lengths. Um, and my idea was a, a beautiful, like dark chocolate brown would be exactly right. So I went to my uh, new local shop, which is not local. No, no, my, I do have a local shop, Freeman's Creative. Called Freeman's Creative and said, and, and asked, and they carry some batiks, but but Amelia, the owner, said not anything chocolatey brown. So, so I drove over to Carry Quilting Company, which is my second local quilt shop, and they did not have a deep brown no they actually did they had they they had it was a, I think a Robert Kaufman fabric called coffee or something like that but you know I put it up against the 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 the, the length of one, one of the rows of batiks that I had and I put it next to it and it and it wasn't right and then I found a blender fabric that is a, a real reddish brown, and that was much better. So I got a couple yards of that, and then I got home and cut a strip, and then I realized we're getting away from the green, and that's what Kate wanted. So now what I need is a really dark, dark green batik. And, you know, it's killing me because I'm looking on my uh, on the wall, and I have a quilt up that has these really dark green batiks, but I don't have them in my stash anymore. So now I'm going to have to go search for a dark green batik for the kind of what I'm calling the, the sashing or the borders between the rows. Borders not the right word. So I think sashing is, but like sashing that's 50 inches long and wonky. Um, so yeah, I'm working on this. It's just, you know, it's like Jay says, art quilt maker Jay make visual decisions visually and you know which I absolutely agree with although right now I'm thinking yes and it just gets more and more expensive as you come up with these ideas <laughs> and they turn out to be wrong but it's okay it's fun but I am enjoying working with the batiks I think the quilt is going to be very cool looking when I finally get it all put together so I'm working on that and I'm also working on a quilt um, I started working on this before I went we went to Kentucky and um, it's a detail from a shot, actually, from a quilt that I found in the Southern Quilt Books. Um, the Southern Quilt Book. And I just thought, just um, about the crown of thorns. Hold on. Oh, I thought I paused. I'm sorry. I may edited that out. I may not. Okay, so there's this quilt. It's um, the chapter is called Crown of Thorns, and so it's these various Crown of Thorn uh, quilts, but also variations. So you know, a variation is a Rocky Mountain Road quilt, and another one is called Springtime in the Rockies. And the, in the book, they show you this quilt, the Springtime from 1935, and it's just it's a 1930s version of the New York Beauty. Um, the patterns from Capper's Weekly, et cetera, et cetera. And then they they show a detailed picture of the quilt. And I just thought, that's really cool looking. That could be its own quilt. And I thought, I could make it its own quilt. So that I'm working on that as well. So it's got, I, I'm just going to have to put a picture on the uh, on the show notes so you can see what I'm after. Because I don't think I would describe it very well, do a good job of describing it. But yes, I have that. As well, and uh, so I've got a bunch of projects going on. Have have yet to make a charity quilt, so I, st- I have five charity quilts to go. Um, yeah, I've got just I'm at that place. You know, I do finish things eventually. Eventually, sometimes it takes years, but um, I got a lot of projects, and that's fun and that's exciting. So yeah, it's good, and I do have this stretch of time right now um, where I don't have any travel planned I think until July 
We don't know about Ocracoke this summer. We're waiting for Jack to make his plans. He was talking about doing an internship in D.C., but I don't think he's going to do that now. It's a little bit up in the air, which I'm glad. I think he should come home and work because in the fall he's going to Copenhagen for a semester, which I'm very excited for him. Uh, I think that's going to be marvelous. Uh, he's at Davidson, and they haven't uh, – his, his major is political science, and he's particularly – interested in international relations and they have some sort of program they do in Copenhagen so hooray so I think he should come home this summer and work so that he can go to Copenhagen with a fat wallet and have a great time anyway but we're waiting for that to all get figured out so we have not rented our house in Ocracoke and I don't know if we're going to do that I don't know if it makes sense right now uh, in terms of the, the various things that are going on in the family in terms of young people having jobs and working at Chick-fil-A and I hope that Will will get a job or an internship this summer here and so who knows I hope we'll make it to the beach because I love the beach kind of doubt we're going to make it to Ocracoke which is weird but I don't have anything planned until July so uh, it's fun to have these projects and to go back and forth and um, dig one out when I run out of inspiration on another one but the goal is to finish them and the goal is to also make five charity quilts Uh, i just watched a video i don't know if you are familiar with joe cunningham he is a a quilter he's a man uh he makes amazing quilts i love his quilts he also does amazing quilting he's just an incredibly talented guy i interviewed him a couple months ago for the quilt alliance story b interviews As you know, I want you to join the Quilt Alliance, and one of the things you get if you join the Quilt Alliance is access to these interviews. The most recent one that's been posted is with Weeks Ringle and Bill Kerr. Really nice people. It was a very fun interview. But if you join, you have access to all the interviews that we've done, and we've been doing them for about a year now. And lots of really neat, fun, interesting people. And Joe Cunningham certainly is is very interesting, really neat guy, really talented guy. But the one thing... Uh, if I ever meet with him in person, you know, the bone that I will pick with him is he is very uh, critical of the modern quilt movement. And his thing is, uh, and in this video, and I'll post a link to the video in the show notes, he talks about how what he doesn't like is that he, uh, he feels that the modern quilt guild is prescriptive about modern quilts. Like, so quilt con is like, for a quilt to be accepted into QuiltCon, it has to meet the criteria uh, that the Modern Quilt Guild has set for quilts. And he's like, you know, of course, that's always there's always aesthetic criteria for any quilt show. But he just feels like, you know, quilt making that has always been, you know, kind of uh, that there's a lot more freedom involved in quilt making than people give quilting credit for. And he talks about 19th century quilts and how, you know, he's like, the quilt makers were abstract, modern, abstract artists, be, you know, before the moderns came around. That they were, you know, that of course, quilt making is, and, and you know, except in the rare occasions when it's pictorial, is always abstract. Um, our quilts are, you know, traffic in, in abstractions. But, you know, he, and, and, you know, I think that's a really interesting part of quilt history um, you know, that, that doesn't get discussed a lot. I think maybe it's starting to get discussed more. And I have a book here that I really like that I got recently about, um, hold on. Yeah, here it is about this very thing. It's called Wild by Design, 200 Years of Innovation and Artistry in American Quilts. It's by Janet Catherine Burlow and Patricia Cox Cruz. It may have been published by the International Quilt Study Center, and I'm going to tell you when it came out. It came out in 2003, and uh, yeah, and it's all about that, about basically, yes, about innovation and artistry and <clears throat> the fact that, you know, in spite of the fact that we think of traditional quilts as being, well, traditional and um, repetitive by by you know by their very nature that here here's a block design here's a block pattern to make this quilt then you copy this block pattern and repeat it and what have you and so what you have is all these quilts that look exactly the same but the fact is it's not really true and uh, when I ta- interviewed Denise Schmidt and I'm I'm sorry I, I don't want to sound like 
I'm name dropping. I did not become best friends with all these people they interviewed, but they are interesting conversations um, for me at least, and I hope for other people as well. But I, when I interviewed Den- Denise Schmidt, I asked her about that, you know, because of course she's kind of considered one of the godmothers of the modern quilt movement. Um, and at the same t- time, she took so much of her inspiration from traditional quilts, and you know, and and her big thing within modern quilting is improv. And so I asked her about that, and she said, "Yeah, you see." Uh, you know, the connection, was there any connection between impro- impro- improvisation and improvisational quilts and tra- traditional, antique traditional quilts as opposed to contemporary traditional quilts? And she said, oh, yeah, you see it all the time, that quilt makers in the 19th century messed around all the time and made changes and clearly sometimes were improvising out of necessity. They ran out of a particular fabric and just threw something else in there and what have you. And and that's what Joe Cunningham is saying in, in his video as well, is that there's always been uh, innovation. There's always been in, in, improvisation and weirdness and freedom in quilt making. And so he his, his thing with the modern quilt movement and particularly modern quilt guild is that they're trying to you know build a fence around a particular kind of quilting um i actually don't think that's true and i think there are other people who say that he's not the only person who says that and what's interesting to me is how many people who are important figures in the modern quilt movement um are a little uh they dance around that a little bit and I've done some interviews with some people fairly recently uh and they've danced around you know if you say well you know here's how the modern quilt movement defines modern quilts and yet you go to QuiltCon and that's not what you see and one of the main definitions in modern quilting about modern quilts and I probably talked about this in the last episode is that modern quilts are functional and we are moving far and fast away from that. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. But um, yeah, it, it's like there's so many quilts at, at, the, at QuiltCon that are clearly not even pretending to be functional, right? So um, yeah, so so there may the modern quilt guild may say, okay, we have to have some definition, and and there are, you know, and when you go to QuiltCon, there are categories, and the categories include improvisation, use of negative space, minimalism. So they're design categories primarily. Um, there's some technique categories such as applique um, and and piecing. Um, but primarily, it's really about design. And I don't think they're being prescriptive. I think they're being descriptive. You know, the, the, quilt, the quilt makers who primarily traffic and these design methods, I don't know if a method is the right word there, you know, but they're, they're, are the, these, are, these are modern quilters. <clears throat> and the thing that I, you know, my, my big thing about, about modern quilting and the roots of modern quilting is the roots of modern quilting are in graphic design. Um, if, if you know, I, I went to Mary Fonz's lecture, and she, as always, is incredibly entertaining and informative. But she really puts the roots in painting and abstract expressionism, um, in particular, minimalism. And and I don't, I, I think she's wrong. I think for as great as Mary is and as smart as she is, I I I think that that's correlation and not causation. I think so much of the modern quilt movement came out of really incredible changes in graphic design um, of the late uh, 20th century and into the early 21st century, and also harking back to mid-century, mid 20th century with mid-century modern design. But you know, it's 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 yeah. But I think the roots are in graphic design, not not the painterly arts. So. Anyway, but I, I don't know. So I just, but when I interviewed Joe Cunningham, it was kind of the same thing. Um, that he kind of came down hard on the Modern Quilt Guild, and he does in this in this video. He does, by the way, this this is part of a series of videos he does. It's like a a, a journal, and uh, you know they're very short. They're they're three to five minutes, and and he's a really smart guy and interesting and entertaining. So I love watching his videos. But um, there's some that make me want to argue with him. Because I'm argumentative myself. So anyway, the other thing to tell you about, and I may just make this a one quilt diary episode um, and try to get it posted, is but yesterday I went to the Heritage 
textile museum. Sorry, I just banged my audio recorder with my hand. I don't know why. But yeah, so yesterday was the 15th, 15th anniversary celebration of the Heritage Textile Museum, which is in uh, Glencoe, North Carolina. It's about 40 minutes away. And I decided to go. I don't, you know, I'm not, in a lot of ways, I'm not a fabric girl, which seems weird for a quilter. But you know, there are people who really have a huge stash. And as you may know, I have virtually no stash. I buy fabric for projects. I don't collect fabric. I love it. I think it's beautiful. But you know, if I go into a, you know, into a quilt shop, I mean, for me, one thing, it, it's overwhelming, right? Um, I need to go in and know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm like that with any kind of shopping. I go in and I shop for particular things. I, I've, other, the only place I shop for pleasure, just to go and browse, is a bookstore. That I'm not overwhelmed at all, but but with other kinds of stores I am, and I need a list and I need to know what I'm looking for. Um, obviously, I, I I love fabric and I think it's beautiful, but I'm not not a stash girl at all. Um, and I'm not, you know, and I'm very interested in quilt history, but have never really been interested in textile history. I have all the Barbara Brackman books, and uh, you know, I know a little bit about dyes and a little bit about fabric production but our textile production but not a lot and and I, I I don't find it fascinating but I thought you know I don't know what made me decide to do this in, in part just because I thought it, it you know, had the potential of being interesting and it's a mill town and and uh Glencoe is a, so Glencoe is a mill a cotton mill uh one of the things they were famous for were plaids and there's a kind of plaid called Alamance plaid Glencoe is an Alamance County, North Carolina. Um, the people who built the mill, the Holt family, built lots of mills um, in Alamance County. Built the first mills in North Carolina, and were actually pretty uh, important in terms of bringing textile mills into the South. Um, what was happening before? these mills uh, grew in the south was that the cotton was being grown in the south and then sent to the north to be milled and I think Holt got this idea it's like hey why don't we go ahead and just mill it here and so uh, the Holt family built a mill on the Haw River I love H-A-W Haw I just love that name I don't know why it's always tickled me but they built this and it's a small mill and you know they typically there were 150 people working there they built housing for, for the mill workers and a lot of those houses have been restored and renovated which is very cool um you know and and so mill villages uh, I've always found kind of interesting there's a really good book called Like a Family that was published by UNC Press in the 1970s and it's oral histories uh, from mill workers in the southern Piedmont which means North Carolina, South Carolina and Georgia where there was there were um, they had textile mills were from the you know, 1870s through the really through the for the next hundred years or so before all that work moved, moved overseas um, you know a lot of people made their living in the mills and in fact the man's family uh, his, his mother comes from Stanley, North Carolina, and his father comes from Gastonia. And they, I think they worked in the mills in their towns, uh, some as teenagers, you know, just not, not ever full time. And in fact, they, when they got married, they got out of the mill towns and moved to Charlotte, the big city, right? Cause they didn't want to be mill workers and they didn't want their children to be mill workers. Um, so, uh, can't remember where I'm going with that. Um, anyway, a lot of people worked in mills and so in this book, like a family is it's, it's fascinating. And there, there are a number of other books about mill working, working in mills, textile mills in the South. And of course, one of my favorite movies, Norma Ray, is about that. So, uh, you know, so it's, yeah. So anyways, both my in-laws grew up in mill towns and, you know, it, it, a lot of people who did think of it quite fondly and in part and, and, and you get the sense from Glencoe where I was yesterday it was so the mill was so small um, you know that it was a very tight community now what was interesting to me and I think you could write a novel about this the textile museum was started by a group of people who I assume were from there and either are descendants of mill workers or descendants of owners 
the fun that the, there was a talk that was given at 11 that was very interesting it went on a little too long but the man who gave it was quite knowledgeable and funny he was a good public speaker he seemed to think very highly <laughs> of the mill owners and and in fact it was, they may, it does sound like by and large they treated their workers well although i noticed that wa- he showed wages like from 1900 to 1939 they never really went up and you know he was talking about how the, the the workers agreed to sign an agreement that they would not strike and he suggested that indicated how happy they were and i was thinking or the fact that they lived out here in the middle of nowhere and if they were fired you know they'd have to move and find work elsewhere and sooner or later they were going to have to sign an agreement not to strike cuz cuz north carolina is very strong anti-union State. So anyway, I'm not sure it's just because they loved, loved Mr. George so much. They just thought they'd go ahead and sign his agreement. Um, so it was interesting. It was, uh, oh, but uh, yes, yeah, so I, I kind of felt like you could write a novel just about a, a group of descendants who decide to open a heritage museum. And first of all, the museum had lots of really cool stuff in it. It was pretty small. It was actually housed in the offices of the mill, the former offices. The mill closed in 1954, and then also in the in the store, in the general store. Um, so pretty, kind of a small space, and you could tell just everybody. The call went out, let us have your stuff for the museum, and everybody brought their stuff. So it's not particularly a well-curated museum. And given that this was a, a mill that produced cotton fabric, it's like I would have loved to have seen more fabric. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, that that was the thing. It's like, so this mill was really all about making fabric, and yet you seem, you, you seem to have two large binders <laughs> That's all they had with fabric, with fabric samples. And it was neat to look at, but, you know, it's just like, huh, wonder why not more fabric. But there was lots of cool stuff to look at. So am I glad I went? Yeah, I am glad I went. Um, Will I go again? You know, I might go again with the man who's a really good photographer, like in October. I think it was probably really beautiful there in October. It would be really fun to do, take photographs of the houses um, and the mill buildings, most of which are closed uh, that the people who run the museum, they got the funding to buy the, the offices and the store, and that's, you know, but nothing else. And so, and I, I was hoping to see inside the mill buildings, but um, they're they're locked up tight. So, yeah, so it's kind of, uh, it's it's too bad, but there'd have to be a ton of money poured into this place. It's pretty far out in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, to to make it what it could be. But, you know, walking around, it's like, oh, wow, this could be amazing. Um, But, yeah, I I don't know. So does this mean now I'm going to get all into the history of textiles? It's like, not really, but I could see getting interested and learning more about uh, the quilting traditions of of mill communities and, you know, did was there quilting tradition and, and, uh, you know, and making connections between fabrics that are produced by say, the Glencoe Mill and what have you, and, and in uh, quilts. I don't know if I'll ever get that involved in it, but that would be my, my area of interest would be, um, would be that, would be connecting textiles, fabrics that came out of local mills. And there were mills here in Durham, too, um, and seeing how they made their way into regional quilts. And you know, I was interested, Barbara Brackman had a, a post recently on her blog about kind of utility quilts and the really crazy wonky utility quilts that that I've really kind of fallen in love with over the last couple years. When I first got a hold of Unconventional and Unexpected, you know, I think I talked about it here, um, the Roderick Karakoff book about quilts from the 1950s to 1975. These are quilts from his collection and really very wonky and made up of all kinds of fabrics. And, um, you know, many of them... at least mimicking kind of traditional patterns, but uh, imperfectly. And if, at first, you know, I thought he made such amazing claims for the, the beauty of these quilts. And at first I was like, yeah, I don't see it. And there's still quilts I look at. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't seem like, you know, it's clearly a utility quilt. It's like four pieces of fabric and a feed sack sewn together and not in no way artfully. It's like, yeah, that's just, that's a utility quilt. Um, but more and more as I spend time with this book, I really do 
uh, loved these quilts. And so in this Barbara Brackman post, she was writing about some of these quilts. Mostly it was just kind of a, it was a blog that was mostly photographs of these, these crazy, they're not, not lower C, uh, lower KC crazy quilts are just wonky and wild quilts. And, and she mentioned, you know, that you find a lot of these quilts in the South and, you know, one reason might be because of the textile factories and that these fabrics could, maybe perhaps these were seconds um, or just fabric, you know, the, the end of rolls or something that, that could be obtained cheaply or perhaps brought home by women who worked at mil- in the mills. Um, perhaps they, they got some fabric out of the deal. And that's that kind of, uh, I don't know, that kind of, I can't think of the word. I want to say spiked my imagination. What word am I thinking of? Sparked? Probably sparked. Spiked spark. You could see my brain. She don't work as good as she used to. But anyways, that, that sparked my imagination and, and made me think, I'm going to go down to that textile museum and see what it's all about. And I do wish it had been more about fabric. But you know what? I'm not moving to Alamance County to take over the dealings of the Heritage Museum, which believe, although that could be the novel. Somebody moves into one of the mill houses and gets involved in the Heritage Textile Museum and tries to like really change it for the better, and the, the powers that be totally resist it because it's their baby, and that's how that would happen. Yeah, I could do that. Maybe I will. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Follow this space. Um, speaking of quilt fiction, still hoping <laughs> to get stars upon stars out this summer. That is the plan. That was also the plan last summer and maybe the summer before, so... Uh, yeah, kind of moving along with that. Uh, fingers crossed. Almost done with Friendship Album 1933. I am done writing it. If you're listening to the Quilt Fiction Podcast, I'm, we're almost at the end of the story. Uh, having a lot of fun, uh, continued fun, and the Quilt Fiction Club, which is a closed Facebook group, which I invite you to join. It's a really nice group. It's a really good conversation. And now I have started another group. Um, which is the Quilt Fiction Club story discussion group because we were starting to get some spoilers because people, you know, it's like some people come to the group having just discovered the podcast a week ago and others have been listening from the very beginning. And so we needed to, I needed to create a space where people could discuss the story without spoiling it for people who are new to the Quilt Fiction Club and to the podcast um, so that's, you know, so that's a lot of fun over there. We're also, um, another close group. I feel like, you know, I've never had a great desire to spend a lot of time on Facebook and now I feel like I'm just there all the time because, uh, the Quilt Alliance, I can't remember if I've mentioned this Do you, know, I am president of the board of the Quilt Alliance now. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it is true. And we're doing a closed group. Oh, I don't think I've told you guys this because it just happened over uh, national quilting day weekend, which was a couple of weeks ago. So started this closed group, the Quilt Alliance Story Circle, and as a way to share the, the documentary work that we're, that the Quilt Alliance does, both the videos and the longer Quilters Save Our Stories interviews. And we got, you know, we got 400 members pretty quickly, and then it just kind of, but the, the, the group had not been that active, you know, and so Amy, who's the executive director, and I would take turns posting and you know, I'm getting some likes and stuff, but there wasn't really much going on. Well, for National Quilting Day, we decided to release, to make available for free uh, a, six of the Story B interviews to anyone. And then if you joined the Quilt Alliance Story Circle closed, that, that closed group, you could, we, uh, we made available in, in that group only the interview I did last fall with Bonnie Hunter. And I got in touch with Bonnie a couple days before we did that to let her know. And I said, will you let your people know? And she said, sure, because she's Bonnie Hunter and she's lovely. She really is just this, she's, I, I admire and like her so very much. She's a great, one of the great people in our contemporary quilt world because um, she cares so much about other people and cares so much about community. Um, in any event, so she got the word out. And over the course of the weekend, we got 3,000 new members to the Quilt Alliance Story Circle. And so what we started doing was every day posting a question, you know, discussion question. And some of it's like, you know, what's the best experience you've ever had giving someone a quilt? And so I just spent the whole day in tears because the stories were so beautiful, but got, you know, tons of responses. 
And so in fact, by the end of the week, we're like, what tool do you like best? Just because I'm like, I can't be at that emotional level all week. But um, but it's been really great, and and people so that so all yeah the Boniacs as they call themselves came over, and we we continue to get like you know about five new people a day joining the group, and so it's it's wonderful and such a great way to to share the work that that we're doing and create a community around it. Um, and Amy and I and another board member have been taking turns kind of hosting. I think it's about to be my turn again. Um, and I'm really enjoying it, but it really is just like, oh, I don't want to be online this much. But uh, And I think I'm going to have to just be disciplined about it and say, okay, I'm going to you know, post stuff, sc- schedule the posts, and then check in at noon and check in in the evening. You know, because you want to be responsive. But, uh, yeah, so anyway. So between that and the Quilt Fiction Club, I'm just like, wow, I'm on Facebook all the time, and I kind of hate Facebook, except for this kind of thing where you know, these kind of discussions around quilting are happening. I also really enjoy, um, there's an antique and uh, what is collectible quilts closed group. Um, and that's just fun for pretty pictures of old quilts. And I like pretty pictures of old quilts. So anyway, I want to update you on that stuff. And um, yep, and starting tomorrow, which is Monday, April 1st, I am going to be revising this book. I just got my notes back from my editor. It's called How to Build a Story. It's a book about writing. Uh, it's it's a book aimed at children, so its audience is children, so it's not writing for children like adults who want to write children's books. It's for kids who want to write fiction. Um, and I'm going to start my revision tomorrow, and uh, that's going to be fun because that's going to be kind of like back to a old normal schedule for me and I feel like I have not been in a normal schedule and in kind of a routine for a while so I'm kind of excited uh, to have that to get back to kind of what I hope is going to be routine you know this time of year April and May sometimes all the routines are kind of shot anyway but I I like order so so I think I'm going to end up here so quilt diary day one quilt diary the only quilt diary for this episode but I think it'd be fun to get the uh, fun to get this posted. I'm going to try to remember to link up to everything I've discussed. I would love to hear from you. You know, I love comments, and thank you everyone who has commented. I've not been as good about acknowledging comments, but I've been out of my routine. I'd like to get back into that. I do. I love hearing from people, so thank you so much. Um, and I know a lot of you comment in your heads. Thank you. I appreciate that too. I hope uh, you're getting a lot of quilting done. I hope that things are going okay for you. And um, yeah. So I will talk to you, and again, I hope, soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Off-Kilter Quilt. Come visit me online at offkilterquilt.com. Until next time, this is Francis. Remember, life is short. Quilt first. <laughs>